Welcome to the DTB podcast for July 2019, volume 57, number 7. My name is David Fazakli, DTB's Deputy Editor. And I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief. Our editorial this month is called, It is Hard Work Being a Patient?, so, James, what's this one about? So this is uh, an editorial that uh, Mike Wilcock has written for us on the issues around the burden of being ill. And we're not talking about the perhaps the adverse effects of functional problems with being ill. We're talking about the problem of actually the work you have to do to make sure you manage your, your condition. So that's collecting medication, that's going to outpatient appointments, it's seeing your GP, it's, it's all those elements of uh, health care that you need to do as a patient. So in the same way that we've recognised that guidelines go on adding more and more medicines, is it now recognising that guidelines actually don't take into account that burden of health care that it imposes on the patient. Absolutely, and I'm I'm flabbergasted sometimes when I you know I see a patient and they've got ten different medications, and these days, you know, we've got things like thyroxine expressly saying you must take it at least thirty minutes before a meal and before a caffeinated drink. So they take that at a certain time in the morning. They must wait until after breakfast before they take other medications. So even the simple task of perhaps taking four of their medications in the morning can be actually quite a complex planned operation. So we don't recognise this. Do patients ever complain? Do they say to you, I can't cope with any more? Well, oddly enough, they don't often explicitly. Of course, they do in other ways, like don't arrive for their medication review or don't uh, have their blood pressure check when they should. So I think that's often a sign that we are overloading them. And we also know, particularly elderly patients now, you know, you just ask yourself how I couldn't cope with taking all these medications, so how could possibly an 80-year-old person with impaired cognitive function be able to do the same thing? So another factor to consider when thinking about reviewing or prescribing, what's the added burden yeah, to the patient? Yeah, can the patient really do what I'm asking them to do? Okay, a good question. Thank you. And our first main article this month is an overview of non-pharmacological treatment for low back pain. So a common problem and one perhaps where we've moved away from drug therapy and particularly have concerns over use of opioids. So what do we cover in this one? So I think this was a really timely article. I'm really pleased you've managed to do it because we have thrown GPs and anyone managing low back pain a really difficult approach now with the use of opioids and other treatments being increasingly looked upon as a doubtful beneficial thing to do. So what we've done in this article is looked at three clinical guidelines uh, from the USA, from the UK and from Denmark and we've reviewed the evidence and the options that they suggest people should trial when they're using non-pharmaceutical um, treatment. And we we divide them into first-line treatment. This is the sort of care that anyone should have who has low back pain. We look at second-line care, which is that stuff that perhaps some people should be offered, but it would be wasteful to offer everyone that. And we also look at stuff that you we should perhaps avoid in the management of low back pain. So the authors very helpfully categorised it into those those three areas. And the key message is, what should we be offering our patients? I think the key message is that first-line care around reassurance and trying to imbibe some confidence in patients around self-care. The learning point for me, I think, is that 
and it's actually quite a pessimistic perhaps message but it was that actually we we need to be much more realistic about the clinical course of low back pain the fact that yes about a third of people will be free of symptoms by 12 weeks but actually up to 60 percent of people will still be having some pain in their back at a year and we need to make it clear that this is actually quite normal and you know debunk some of those myths around the idea that there may be a cure that being healthy means that you'll never experience any pain. The old issue a lot of people worry about is that, you know, my pain tells me there must be something wrong with me, that it somehow accurately measures damage when it when it doesn't. So it's, it's I think those areas, the, the fact that actually even just five minutes of someone educating patients around some aspect of their back pain has been shown to have benefit at 12 months. And I think all patients really should have a much better understanding of their back pain once they've seen a GP or first uh, contact physiotherapist or uh, a higher functioning nurse or any other healthcare professional in primary care. It's really important that we get those messages across. Yes, and for me that key message was being really open about the limitations of all the treatments we have to offer. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you very much. We end this month with a case report of the impact of aggressive pharmacological management of type 2 diabetes in a 70-year-old patient. So what happened? So I thought this was a, a useful case report because this is a story of a 70-year-old man who was on metformin 850 milligrams three times a day for his non-insulin-dependent diabetes. He had an EGFR of about 70 and liraglutide was added to improve his uh, glycemic control. He developed some nausea and this got much worse around three weeks with uh, quite significant nausea and vomiting and he was admitted with metformin associated lactic acidosis and actually had um, a cardiac arrest in hospital and had to be ventilated and really went through a very torrid recovery period. And I think it's just a reminder that metformin, we, we use it ubiquitously in non-insulin-dependent diabetes. But, you know, just be aware of the SPC rules on um, metformin and renal function and always beware acute kidney injury and be ready to stop the metformin. So although this is, this is a rare, metformin-associated lactic acidosis is rare, perhaps fewer than five in 100,000 cases but if you don't monitor the renal function you rapidly change their diabetic control this is a potential risk it is and if you think that we've got almost 20 percent of adult population now with non-independent diabetes and the majority of, the will, of them will be on metformin you know a rare adverse event can happen anytime soon okay thank you very much and to read these and any of our articles please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com